1 Peter chapter 2. Lord willing, time willing, we're going to do verses 4 through 10. I really wanted to pick up the pace a little bit, but once you get to verse 11, really from about verse 11 on through roughly verse 25, it is one continuous topic, and I really don't like breaking up those topics. Um, so we're going to kind of take our time here and really kind of study this out. I love this book. I love the logic of this book. And when I say the word logic, I'm not taking anything away from it being spirit-led, but it builds these wonderful spiritual arguments for the Lord and who we are in Christ. And you can see right here at the beginning, the main theme of tonight is found in verse 4, that idea of Jesus was rejected by men but chosen by God. That's the main theme. You're going to hear that repeated a lot tonight. This idea of Christ was rejected by man, but God chose him to be the Messiah. So let's have a quick word of prayer. Let's go right into this. Heavenly Father, I just pray that this time of study tonight would be a blessing to us as we go deeper in you. We learn of you, grow in you, be lights and witnesses for you and all that we say and do in your name. Amen. Let's go ahead and start here. Verse 4 it says, Coming to him as to the living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, let's just build on this here. First thing that you see, verse 4, Jesus was rejected. Now, I know that's not an earth-shattering spiritual point, but you realize that changed history. There's really major events in life that changed his history. First one, obviously, was when uh, Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden. Completely changed everything. We're still supposed to be in the Garden of Eden, but through sin, we were kicked out of the Garden of Eden. And you've heard me say this numerous times before. When someone comes to me and says, why is the world like this? How could a God of love allow this? This is not God's original plan. You always have to remember that. Number two, this idea of Jesus being rejected. Now, granted, through his rejection, salvation came through the cross, but this idea that the world did not want the Savior. And nothing's changed. Even 2,000 years later, the world doesn't want the Savior. I'm willing to bet that all of us here, and I'm not being judgmental in any way whatsoever, we, more, we know more non-believers than we probably do believers. When you go into work tomorrow or tonight or whenever it's going to be, you're going to be working more with non-believers than you are believers. That's kind of the truth of it. And this idea here is that the world rejected the Lord. And since the world rejected the Lord, this is the world we get. This is the nation we get. This is what we get. And it all comes down to verse 4, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God. Everything's flip-flop. This is not the way it's supposed to be. Which takes me to this passage here in Isaiah 5, verse 20. I love this verse. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. What a powerful verse. I tell you right now, the world has a tendency to call evil good and good evil. And that's the truth of it. Go flip on the nightly news and you're going to see a lot of evil things being called good. You're going to see a lot of good things being called evil. It comes down to the black and white of this. You're either saved or you're not saved. That's the point that we're working at here. So with this being said, how does this apply to us through Christ? Well, you can see the spiritual points that are built here. And this is pretty simple, straightforward. Verse 4, Christ is the living stone. And so since Christ is the living stone in verse 4, when we accept Jesus as our Savior, we become, verse 5, living stones. Now that phrase, living stone, is really a really strange way to describe ourselves. A living stone. But there's some idea behind this. Can you turn with me to the book of Ezekiel? Ezekiel 36. Great passage here. And this is what I love about Wednesday nights, is being able to get in some of this stuff and really chew on this stuff. Can you come with me to Ezekiel 36? Ezekiel 36. Let's talk about this idea of the idea of being a living stone. Kind of an oxymoron when you stop and you think about it. What is God trying to say here with this? Ezekiel 36, and let's go ahead and pick it up here in verse uh, 24. 
It says, For I will take you from among the nations, gather you out of all countries, and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols, and I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Verse 27, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will keep my judgments and do them. I love that passage. Let's just look at that one more time. Verses 26 and 27. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. That's the Old Testament way of saying you need to be born again. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. See, our hearts were stone. We were hard towards the Lord. Now, for some of you that got saved later on in life, maybe you can remember your B.C. days, the days where people told you about Christ, and to be quite honest, you just didn't care. Your heart was hard towards God. And so this idea of being a living stone that shows Christ coming into the hardness of our lives, people that have rejected Jesus Christ, and he says, I don't care you reject him, I still love you. And he keeps working at us through his spirit, and he keeps softening that heart of stone until we become alive and active, born again in Christ. Until we're saved in Jesus, we're just walking around dead. Now, we don't get it, we don't realize it because we think we're alive, we're keeping ourselves alive with the things of the world to make us happy, but the truth of the matter is we're dead. And so we become a heart of living stone, as it says there in verse 26. Verse 27, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will keep my judgments and do them. Never take for granted, verse 27, God chooses to live inside of you once you get born again and saved. That's a mind-blowing statement. The God of the universe decided to put the Holy Spirit inside of us when we chose to be saved. I shouldn't say when we chose, when we accepted the salvation that Jesus offered to us. So when you see this back here in 1 Peter, in this little simple statement of, well, Jesus is a living stone, we become a living stone. That's not a simple statement. That's a huge thing. That is talking about being born again. That's talking about the Holy Spirit living inside of us. That's talking about what Jesus Christ did on the cross. Never take for granted what Jesus did. Now that we are a living stone born again, now we go to our next part here. What are we supposed to do with this? Verse 5. You also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house. There's so many different symbolisms with that. We are all different stones put together that form Harvest Fellowship Church. But you know what? It's really not about Harvest Fellowship Church. Because it really doesn't make a lick of difference in what's going on with Harvest. What matters is, is the people being saved. That's what matters. You know, and if someone comes out to Harvest and they come out for a few weeks and they're blessed and they go share other people and they start going to a different church, then God bless it. Because it's not about us. It's about the bigger kingdom of God. And this idea of coming together then as a spiritual house is we as believers work together to see the gospel being spread. We're a holy priesthood, which we'll get to that more in a little bit. But the goal is found in the end of verse 5, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. The reason you and I are here and the reason we are saved is that we can use the time and energy we have to further the kingdom of God. That's such a simple statement, but that is all that matters. And how many times have we said this out here? When we get ourselves worked up over little things that do not matter, that has nothing to do with eternity, we're losing the focus. The focus is, are people saved or not saved? Flip, if you will, with me to John 15. I want to build on this a little bit. Because there's two points that come out of this. The first one is, if you note, it has to be through Jesus. The only way you become alive is through Christ. The only way you offer up spiritual sacrifices is through Christ. The reason we're here is to offer up spiritual sacrifices. It is so simple and easy when you really stop and realize my main purpose in life is just to take the kingdom of God and move it forward through the power of the Holy Spirit. Wow, that's how easy it is. John 15 talks about this. This is Jesus speaking. 
Verse 4. He goes, Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Now that, that's a really simple statement, but I have to be reminded of that. This is basically saying in verse 4, James, it's not about you. You can do whatever you want, James, but it's not about you. Unless you're doing it through me and my power and my will, it doesn't matter. Verse 5. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bear much fruit. Look at the last phrase here. Without me, you can do nothing. I love it that, that all that pressure is off my shoulders. I can't do anything without the Lord. And there are certain times out here in my own personal life, in my marriage, and raising my kids, and in the ministry of Harvest Fellowship, I try to do stuff on my own. I can't. I can't fix anything. Apart from me, you can do nothing. I can't. I can't make somebody go deeper in their walk with the Lord. I can't fix somebody's marriage. I can't make people interested in Christ. There's nothing you can do. I have people come to me all the time, and they'll say something to the fact of, well, my spouse isn't interested in the Lord. What can I do? I don't know. Pray for them. Live a godly life in front of them. Hopefully they see what you have and they want it. I'm not happy with my kids. They're not going as deep as they can in the Lord. How can I make them go deeper? You can't make them go deeper. Encourage them. Uplift them. Live the life in front of them. That's all we can do because it says in verse 5, apart from me you can do nothing. Do you realize how much pressure it would be if you had the power to save someone? Oh my goodness. I remember when I first got saved, I thought it was my responsibility to save every non-believer I ran into. I'm so thankful now I realize that's the Holy Spirit's job. My job is to point people towards Christ. If they choose to take it, they take it. If they choose not to take it, they don't. Richard's got this great quote that I now use all the time, where if we haven't seen somebody in a while at church and I'm kind of concerned about them, I'll go to Rich and I say, hey, I'm kind of concerned about this person we haven't seen them and i'll say something like you know maybe we should drop them a call drop them a card or get a hold of them somehow and let them know we're missed richard always looks at me and goes they know we're here at 10 o'clock on sunday now which shows i love you and richard don't but the point is <laughs> richard sees the big picture richard sees the big picture of you can't force it and sometimes i still want to force it i want to force someone to go deeper verse five without me you can do nothing you can't. And let's go one step further with this. Jump ahead, if you will, to verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. Now, you've heard me say this before, and I've been accused of oversimplifying this, but I still think I'm right. Your primary purpose in life is found in verse 16. Go and bear fruit. We spend way too much time in these deep, intellectual conversations of what's my purpose in life. Your purpose in life is run right there in verse 16. Go bear fruit. Well, how do I do that? Whatever way the Lord's called you. That's a little deeper to figure out, but your primary purpose in life is to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what it is. Put this all together now. First Peter is telling us Jesus is the living stone, so therefore we become living stones through Christ, so we can't do anything without him. And then our goal, according to 1 Peter, is spiritual sacrifices, which lines up right here with what Jesus said in John 15, 16. Go bear fruit. I'm going to tell you right now, the most fulfilled I feel in life, and dare I say the best I feel good about myself, is when I'm out there doing things for the Lord because I see an eternal purpose. But when I start focusing on me and I get real mopey and whiny that things aren't lining up with what I want, my focus is off the Lord and I get depressed and discouraged. If it's all about Christ, it's all about Him, and I just go out there and I do it. It's through Jesus, for Jesus, and all that we do and say. So that's the first point here that we need to talk about. Anybody got any quick questions, comments about this before we move on with the rest of this? Okay, let's continue on then. So we've covered verses 4 and 5. Let's jump ahead to verse 6. Therefore, it is also contained in the Scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious. But to those who are disobedient... The stone which the builders rejected 
have become the chief cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble, being disobedient to the word to which they also were appointed. Now, you see our main theme being repeated here again. Rejected by man, chosen by God. See, this just continues it. Look at verse 7. Who is Jesus to us? Precious. He's precious to us. Who is he to the world? Verse 7. They're disobedient. Now, this word disobedient does not literally mean what we think of a disobedient. When I think of the word disobedient, I imagine some little kid not listening to his parents. They're disobedient. This word literally means, and I put the definition there, to not to allow oneself to be persuaded. Because when I look at this word disobedient, I stop and look at myself in the spiritual mirror of life, and I realize, you know, I'm pretty disobedient <laughs> a lot of times too. So when I look at verse 7, and I think, oh boy, to those who are disobedient means you've rejected Jesus. That doesn't look real good for me. I sin. You sin. That's the beauty of a relationship with Jesus is he forgives us. Now, I'm not trying to do like what Paul said in Romans of just sin that grace may abound. But this word disobedient literally means the person hears the information about Jesus and they don't want it. Now, do you know anybody like that? I sure do. You, you've explained the gospel to them clearly. You've explained the gospel to them fully. And they just don't want it. According to the Bible, they're being disobedient because the Holy Spirit is knocking on their hearts and they're choosing to ignore it. Rich and I get together for prayer every Tuesday. And he was telling me a story about how he got a call from someone in the community recently. And they don't come out here, but they were going through a tough time. So he went over to their house and tried to sit down and start talking to them. And the only thing the person wanted to do was just complain about life and everything that was going wrong. So Rich said it was a classic conversation. If you listen to him for a little bit, and then you try to bring him back to Jesus. Okay, you listen to him for a little bit, and you try to bring him back to Jesus. But the truth of the matter is, they didn't want it. They didn't want the answer that is found in Christ. And so once again, classic Rich, who's basically pretty straightforward and blunt, he said, I looked at her and I said, the only thing I have to offer is Jesus. And I can see Rich saying that. The only thing I have to offer is Jesus. And I thought, isn't that the truth? When you are disobedient, it means you don't want the answer. And the answer is found, very simply put, according to us, verse 7, Jesus is precious. Now think about this. Jesus, it's a name of salvation. It's a name of comfort. But to the world, it's just another cuss word. But to us, it's such a precious name. And, and I don't know about you, but, you know, a lot of times I'm around life, a lot of times I'm around people, and you hear a lot of words that you shouldn't hear. And I'm not trying to downplay other words, but there's a lot of other cuss words you kind of get used to hearing, and it kind of almost goes in one ear and out the other. I don't know. I've been saved for almost 20 years. When I hear someone still take the name of Jesus in vain, that still makes me cringe a little bit. Because you realize the preciousness of that name, of what that really means, and for it to be spoken of is so derogatory. Very simply put, either saved or you're not. Jesus is either precious to you or you're disobedient to it. You're either rejecting him or accepting to be chosen by him. Turn, if you will, through me to real quick to Matthew 21. I'm going to build on this one point. Matthew 21. This is the black and white of scriptures. Either rejected or chosen. You're either living for Christ or not living for Christ. He's either precious to you or you're disobedient to it. Matthew 21. And you'll see why we're going here because we're going to see the same verse quoted again. And if you've heard me say numerous times out here, anytime you see a verse quoted from the Old Testament to the New Testament, you realize that's God's way of saying, hey, this is really important. And when you see a verse not only quoted once, but twice, maybe even three, four times in the New Testament, that's God's way of saying this is important. Look here at Matthew 21, verse 42. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the Scriptures the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. Whoever falls on this stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. Now, verse 44 is saying, very simply put, 
You either choose to fall on the stone of Christ and you're broken. You're broken as a sinner, as a broken man, a broken woman, and you realize your life is nothing without Jesus and you're broken. And then Jesus heals you up. If you choose to reject that, the stone falls on you and it grinds you to powder. That's what happens. Now, stop and think about it. You either fall on a stone or the stone falls on you. Now, neither one seems appealing right away at first. But when you stop and you think about it, the reason I need to be broken by falling on the stone is because i got this sin problem that has to be taken care of. And until I accept the fact that I'm a sinner, until I accept the fact that I deserve hell, until I accept the fact that I don't get to go to heaven, I'm not accepting the fact that I need to be broken. i got to fall on the stone. I have to be broken. If I choose to reject that, the stone falls on me and it grinds me to pieces for all of eternity. Now, that is not some unloving God that wants to send people to hell. That's somebody saying right from the beginning, here's how it works. Either reject Christ and suffer the consequences of hell or accept Christ and enjoy the blessings of heaven. That's pretty straightforward. Now, some of you, you have some pretty good broken stories from verse 44 because I've heard them. I know what you had to go through to be broken by the Lord to bring you to the point of salvation. But aren't you glad the Lord did that? And I know some people right now where I see the stone falling on them. And I see them being ground to powder. And I'm like, why do they not just submit themselves to the Lord? I don't get it. It's a disobedience. It's a hard heart that we just read back in Ezekiel. God help them. I hope they do come to know the Lord as their Savior. But until that time, the stone falls on them and grinds them. That's God's way of saying I love you enough to try to get your attention. Now, does anybody got any quick questions, comments about that? Because that's a key point. And I bet you have some people right now you know. They either need to be broken or they're going to be broken by the Lord. Okay. Yeah. Surely. It is a hard concept. It, it, it is. Because you, you're absolutely right, Shirley. I know some people that aren't saved, and they're the nicest moral people I've ever met. To be quite honest, they're nicer and more moral than some people I know that are saved. And that even though they're people that are my brothers in Christ, it's like, yeah, I can't call them to come help me. But that guy down the road that's not saved, he'll be over here in five minutes. I, I completely agree with you. I guess as soon as you were talking, I was thinking about this. Dawn and I just got a uh, new dog about a month ago. We replaced the old one that passed away, and she's a cute little thing. Cute little puppy. She's only about 12, 13 weeks old, and just adorable. Uh, her name is Bella, and just she's just the greatest thing in the world. And uh, I love her more than Dawn. And so, <laughs> but the way we're training her is we're training her with the electric fence. It's a wireless fence. We used it for our old dog. Worked perfectly. So if you drive by our house, we have all these flags set up, and I'm training her. And I think she's adorable, I think she's cute, and I love her so much that I don't want to see her get hit on the road. So I'm willing to train her and allow her every now and then to get shocked, which is going to hurt her, to remind her, don't go near the road. So I guess the way I look at it spiritually is, the Lord every now and then shocks some people. He, he grinds them a little bit to say, I love you so much that this temporary pain that you're going through right now on earth does not compare in any way to the eternity of hell. And so I'm willing to let you go through some pain right now since you don't know me to bring you to the salvation experience of knowing me to save you through all of eternity of going to hell. That's the way I kind of look at it. So I love that dog, and I'm willing to see that dog get a couple shocks here and there to remind her for the rest of her life, stay away from the road. The Lord loves me enough and loves you enough to give you and I a couple shocks every now and then to remind us, stay away from hell. So God and love is the stone that falls on people. I know that's a really weird concept. It's the most loving thing he can do. The most loving thing we can do is tell somebody who's not saved that there's a hell. I know that doesn't make sense, but it does. If you're not saved, the most loving thing I can do is look you in the eye and say, unless you accept Christ as your Savior, you're going to hell. 
And I love you enough to tell you that. Does anybody else have any quick questions, comments about this? Yeah, Ryan. Yeah, it's a light and witness, and that word uh, peculiar can also be translated in certain translations special. And that is something there that is. We are different as Christians. I mean, the whole goal is, as a Christian, if you just stand a believer up beside a non-believer, you may not really be able to tell the difference. But I would hope by walking with believers and, and being around them at work, etc., kind of like what Ryan is saying there, is you see a difference in them. The goal is that hopefully as believers, we're not cussing like the world cusses. We're not complaining like the world complains. We're not talking about going out on Friday nights and getting wasted and bringing some gal home. We're different. Well, the Bible uses the word special. Well, the better translation may be a little peculiar. I know some Christians, and they are very peculiar. You know, We are a little weird sometimes. According to the standards and mores of the world, we are a strange group of people. But, and this is what gets us into what we're not going to get into tonight, but next week is if you look at verse 11, there, beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims. This is not our home. So the way the world handles things is through anger and frustration and drugs and alcohol and sex and all this other type of stuff. That ain't us. This is not our home. We are different. We are special. We're peculiar. And to be quite honest, according to the world, we're a little weird. But we follow Christ who set up a different standard than what the world is. And we're, we're under a different standard. And I know that's a frustrating part to me because every now and then I see the way the world handles things. It's like, I want to handle it that way. I, I, want, to, I want to get angry like they get angry. You know, I want to see what they see. I want to talk like they talk. I want to be that way. And it's like, no, you don't. There's a different standard that's a different... I don't, Lord, I really don't in my heart. I don't want to be that way. I want to follow the standards you have set. I want to be like Christ and all I say. We else have anything here before we move on? Yeah, Mom. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's the classic example of the altar call. Um, you know, when Jesus chose the fishermen, I go back to the beginning, especially the book of Mark, he went up to Peter and John and James and Andrew and he said, follow me. Well, the Bible says they dropped their nets and followed him. You know, he sent out the call for salvation. They responded to the call and they chose then to follow him. And that's exactly what it is, is there is a time when the Lord calls you and you choose to listen. That is where the Holy Spirit nudges at your heart that you need to respond to that altar call. That's where that guy at work has been telling you about Christ. You finally respond to it. So, yes, there is the calling of God. God chooses us, but ultimately we have to drop our nets like they did, like uh, Peter and Andrew, and say, I want to follow the Lord. We have to respond to the call. Anybody else have anything before we close up? Okay, well, let's jump ahead here. Excuse me. Let's finish this up, verses 9 and 10. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people but are now the people of God, who have not obtained mercy but now have obtained mercy. And this is a great thing to end on because who are we in Jesus? You know, if we accept the fact that it's through Jesus we're saved, it's through Jesus that we offer spiritual sacrifices, it's through Christ we choose. Who are we in Jesus? Look at verse 9. Just look at these four adjectives. First one, a chosen generation. If you ever have a moment of nobody likes me, everybody hates me, I guess I'll go eat worms type moment, Jesus chose you. He died on the cross for you. Never forget the fact that God said, I want to offer you salvation. So the rest of the world may not care, but God himself cares. We're chosen. Now that's, that's a neat thing too, if you don't know that, that's also the verse that the youth group chose out here at church. They call themselves chosen generation, that idea that there is a purpose and a plan for their life. The next one, a royal priesthood. Now I wish we had more time and we're running out of time tonight. We're priests. 
Priests were in the Old Testament a select group of people that were chosen by God to have intimate access to Him and the daily rituals of what the temple did. We are a chosen group of people that have a special intimate access to God and we get to be used by Him daily to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. So granted, we're not out there sacrificing animals, we're not cleaning up after them, we're not taking care of the temple and the ark and all that other type of stuff, but every day we are a priesthood chosen by God to handle the intimate things of Jesus. That's an amazing thing. A holy nation. And we've talked about this word holy numerous times before. It's where we get our word saint. It doesn't mean that we're better than people. It means that we're chosen by God and separated out of a filthy world and made clean in Christ. And lastly, depending on your translations, we're special or peculiar. We are different. Too often I sometimes see Christians trying to mesh with the world so much. And I think they forget, you know what, we are, we're going to be different. We're just going to be different. Our belief systems are different. What we believe is right and true is different. The moral standards of the Bible is different. This does not make us better than anybody else. But the truth of the matter is if you sit down with a group of non-believers and you start talking about any topic, be it entertainment, be it likes and dislikes of politics, etc., you're going to find yourself probably disagreeing on a lot of things because we have a different moral standard that God has given us. And why are we doing this? Look at the end of verse 9, that we may proclaim the praises of him who called us. It comes back to that purpose again. I'm here to proclaim who God is and to tell people about Christ. That's what it comes down to. Why? Because of verse 10, I've obtained mercy through Jesus. Since I'm saved, I'm different. And since I'm different, I live my life differently. I'm chosen. I'm a priesthood. I'm a holy nation. I'm a peculiar person sometimes. And I'm out there living my life for the Lord and all the ways say and do. Anybody have any final questions, comments about this before we close up? All right. Next week, next week, we get into this verse 11 that we kind of touched on a little bit there, this idea of being sojourners and pilgrims and how that leads us into a different lifestyle. And it's going to get us into verse, uh, excuse me, the rest of chapter 2, which has got some great stuff, I think, on just living a daily life as a Christian, how we're different. So let's go ahead and close with a word of prayer. We'll let you guys go. Heavenly Father, we just come to you. Thank you for just, uh, Lord, you chose us. Thank you. Thank you so much for your love, your grace, your mercy. And Lord, we want to go out and live for you and be a light and a witness for you in all that we say and all that we do. And we just ask for your hand upon that. And truly help us, Lord, to live for you. In your name we pray. Amen. Quick reminders, check out the sign-up sheets back to the right, Belmore, Car Care, etc. See if there's anything you want to get involved with. So you guys have a good week and God bless.